and State Department and USAID management, international operations, and bilateral international development. Um, it's, it's a pleasure to welcome our distinguished uh, panel of witnesses uh, on this subject. And as I was explaining before we got started, there is a series of votes on the floor of the Senate. So Senator Haggerty and I are going to do our best to uh, proceed as far as we possibly can. We'll see how uh, the timing works, but we'll ask for all of your cooperation. So today the subcommittee intends to continue its exploration of issues affecting the performance of the State Department, focusing on the necessary training and professional development to recruit and retain high-performing workforce. I want to thank the ranking member, Haggerty, for his support in developing this hearing and advancing the important work of this subcommittee. Senator Haggerty has repeatedly utilized his valuable experience as the former ambassador to Japan, giving us insight as to how diplomacy works and what areas need to improve in order for the United States to compete successfully in this ever-complex global environment. In addition to his diplomatic experience, Senator Haggerty brings private sector experience that is also critical in addressing these challenges. And as I pointed out before we started the hearing, he's a graduate from the, uh, the training program. Uh, I understand his exact grades are kept as confidential, and we cannot do a, a release of that information. I was pleased to see the Secretary of State Tony Blinken weigh in last week on the topic of today's hearing when he issued his five pillars for modernizing American diplomacy. He hit on many of the important themes that we raised at our July hearing on modernizing the State Department for the 21st century, including building the department's capacity and expertise, creating a climate for initiative and innovation, modernizing technology and communications, and deepening overseas engagement. The most important pillar, he noted, which is central to today's discussion, is building and retaining a diverse, dynamic, and entrepreneurial workforce and empowering and equipping the State Department employees to succeed. I look forward to seeing a concrete plan for the rebuilding effort Mr. Plinken spoke about, which will require significantly increasing investments of time and resources in the development of the Department's greatest assets, its people. Many of the most serious international challenges the United States faces in 2021 will require the State Department personnel to take the lead, calling for improved and expanded training and professional development opportunities for foreign service and civil service personnel. The level of challenges the Department faces now around the world are almost unprecedented. The return of great power competition, the rise of authoritarianism, the collapse of Afghanistan, addressing climate change, conflicts, leading a global response to the pandemic, and most importantly, assisting American citizens around the world. In light of this, professional education and training must be top priority at the State Department, and we must strengthen the professionalism of our diplomats through a vastly expanded career-long program of education and training that focuses on the mastery of substantive foreign policy issues, diplom diplomatic expertise, and leadership. There is also a critical need for increased preparation of ambassadors and other senior leaders for their high-level positions beyond the, the minimal three-week training they received known around the department as the charm school before representing the United States at home and overseas. The State Department must be seen as the lead agency in executing American foreign policy overseas, ensuring that each chief of mission's role is clear, paramount, safeguarded, and unsaleable. I support the President's proposal to increase the budget of the Department of State and USAID by 10%. If enacted, 
and I hope it will be, this would provide the largest increase in personnel in over a decade, allowing for more flexibility in training and the much needed training float the former Secretary of State Colin Powell dreamed of so many years ago. Yet I wonder if it is enough in order for the State Department to make the changes that experts have called for and that Secretary Blinken has acknowledged the department must embrace a dramatic turnaround in its current culture. This will require replacing the old culture that stalls careers at mid-level and sees training as an impediment with a new culture of education being career enhancing. Employees and leaders throughout the department must be empowered to make these changes and given the resources to do it. If handled correctly, we will see the State Department that has transformed its approach to diplomacy once again positioning the United States as the leader in the international arena. And with that, let me turn over to my distinguished ranking member, Senator Haggerty. Thank you very much, Chairman Cardin. Th thank you for convening this hearing, and thank you for your insightful and thoughtful remarks uh, as, as we open up here. I also want to recognize our witnesses. Um, I know we've broken this into two parts, but I'm looking forward to uh, a very fruitful discussion, and I appreciate your being here with us today. Uh, before I begin, I would just like to say this. I'm disappointed that the Bureau of Global Talent Management did not join us today. Uh, as a former U.S. Ambassador to Japan, I recognize that the issues of training and personnel management go hand in hand. I hope to work with Senator Cardin to make significant progress on personnel-related matters over the near future. Today, we're focusing on the important subject of training in the State Department's workforce. In July, this subcommittee held a hearing on the topic of modernizing the State Department for the 21st century. At that time, all three of our witnesses agreed that change is desperately needed at the State Department. And each of our witnesses spent a considerable amount of time with us discussing the need to improve training at the Department of State. We can all agree that the development of our diplomats, their education, their training, their professionalization must be among the highest priorities for the State Department. This is a particularly glaring problem considering that in my view, the State Department attracts some of the most talented individuals in the United States government. According to a study, people join the State Department on average with a graduate education and 11 years of work experience. Yet, the same study noted that State, and I quote, treats education as a prerequisite for hiring and not a continuing requirement to prepare personnel for their subsequent responsibilities. In essence, when diplomats come in the door, they're treated as though they have the knowledge and skill necessary for the profession, yet really what they depend on for the most part in terms of their leadership instruction is mentoring from senior diplomats. I think we can do better. As part of addressing the, trans the training deficiency at the State Department, Secretary Blinken specifically announced his intent to implement Secretary Powell's idea for a training float that Senator Cardin just mentioned. A set number of employees who are receiving professional training at any given time and structured in a manner that doesn't sacrifice the State Department's readiness. I think that the idea in principle is something I certainly support as well, but Congress should ask hard questions and hold the Department accountable on personnel and training-related issues. I raise the point because Congress has provided the Department with significant resources over the past 15 years to enough resources to establish a training float. Since 2007, the State Department has added a combined 3,500 Foreign Service and Civil Service employees. This amounts to approximately a 20% increase in the number of employees over that period of time. And certainly with a 20% increase in the number of foreign and civil service employees, the department could have faithfully implemented Secretary Powell's vision for a training float 
with 15% of that workforce dedicated to training at all times. Yet here we are in 2021 attempting to address that same issue. To echo Senator Cardin's statement earlier, I look forward to seeing a concrete plan on the issue from the State Department. We'll need to be bold in reimagining how the department approaches training, recognizing that the department must embrace a new culture, just as Chairman Cardin said. We must also incentivize and reward our diplomats to seek further education and professional development opportunities. And we must develop a cohesive program that identifies the skills our diplomats will need as their responsibilities escalate over the course of their careers. I look forward to hearing from our witnesses today about this subject and to hear their specific recommendations to improve training at the State Department. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Haggerty. Uh, I, I very much appreciate your comments and your uh, joint leadership of our effort uh, to make the State Department as strong and responsive as we possibly can. Uh, as I indicated earlier, we have two panels uh, today. Uh, for all the witnesses, your statements without objection will be made part of our record, and you will be able to proceed. We ask you to stay within approximately five minutes in your uh, prepared remarks and leave time for uh, questions. So it's my pleasure first introduced in panel one, Ambassador Joan Polachek, a career member of the Senior Foreign Service, who's currently the Deputy Director of the Department of State's Foreign Service Institute. Ambassador Polachek's career has focused on the Middle East and North Africa, with assignments ranging from the U.S. Ambassador to Algeria, which I understand I was present during her confirmation hearing, uh, to Director of the Office of Israel and Palestinian Affairs. During her distinguished career, she also served in Libya, Jordan, Tunisia, as Azerbaijan and Uzbekistan. It's a real pleasure to have you before us and I look forward to your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. It's an honor to appear before you again. Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Haggerty, members of the subcommittee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. I've provided written testimony that outlines the full range of measures the Foreign Service Institute has taken to better prepare U.S. diplomats for the challenges of 21st century diplomacy. I ask that my written statement be also, also be submitted for the record and will highlight a few key areas. In his October 27th speech at the Foreign Service Institute, also known as FSI, Secretary Blinken outlined his vision to modernize American diplomacy, stressing the need to strengthen the Department of State's expertise in areas that are increasingly at the forefront of global affairs. He identified climate change, public health, cyber issues, and emerging technologies as areas of particular focus. Training, of course, must be at the center of our efforts. In support of the Secretary's initiative, FSI will launch a new cyber diplomacy tradecraft course that will cover U.S. national security human rights, and economic imperatives. To enhance capacity to engage on climate change, sustainability, and emerging technologies, FSI is conducting needs assessments to identify training requirements. FSI also is conducting a needs assessment to strengthen commercial diplomacy training. Separately, we're developing a mid-level course that will strengthen the analytical, communication, and advocacy skills of foreign and civil service personnel. With strong support from Congress, 
the Department of State has invested heavily in recent years to improve what we train and how we train. We're completing construction of a new building at the National Foreign Affairs Training Center and are upgrading FSI's three main educational management systems. My written testimony highlights new curriculum and area studies that we developed with Ambassador Miller and the US Diplomatic Studies Foundation, data analytics, information technology, leadership, and orientation training, including the one team course that brings together all categories of State Department employees for the first time ever to break down barriers and instill values of respect and inclusion. We partnered with external organizations on many of these initiatives, including Harvard Business School for the Secretary's Leadership Seminar. We're leveraging the expertise of the State Department's Office of the Historian, which moved to FSI in 2019, and FSI's Center for the Study of the Conduct of Diplomacy to bring real-world examples into the classroom. We've conducted reviews of training for locally employed staff and of our language testing program and are implementing wide-ranging reforms in both areas. Outside the classroom, we're working to bring information to people when and where they need it through new lecture series on global issues as well as the, on the intersection of technology and foreign affairs and regular webinars on leadership and resilience. The COVID-19 pandemic accelerated our use of technology as we shifted 94% of our course offerings into the virtual world. We are assessing the lessons learned from this pivot to emergency virtual instruction to determine which classes should remain virtual and how we can further strengthen our overall content and delivery. Virtual training has expanded our reach and effectiveness. As Secretary Blinken underscored, the State Department needs a workforce that is representative of the United States of America and an organizational culture anchored in inclusiveness. In 2019, FSI launched Mitigating Unconscious Bias Training, a course that helps employees become aware of their own biases and begin addressing them. More than 17,000 people have taken the course. Mitigating unconscious bias is a prerequisite for the State Department's mandatory leadership courses, and in addition to EEO training, is the foundation for diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility modules in a range of courses. In coordination with the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer, we are launching a State Department-wide assessment of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility training needs. To accelerate our efforts, FSI established a new position, the Senior Advisor for DEIA. Mr. Chairman, preparing U.S. diplomats for the challenges of 21st century diplomacy is a broad-based effort to which FSI is deeply committed and which has the support of the department's senior leadership. We are very grateful for the ongoing interest and support of the Senate and of FSI's many partners. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Madam Ambassador, thank you very much. I, I, I want to ask you first about the Foreign Service Institute as an institution and whether there are lessons to be learned from the other institutions that we have that deal with national security and similar types of issues, such as the uh, National Defense University or the Army War College. Uh, or the Institute Studies Diplomacy at Georgetown's University School of Foreign Service. Uh, is there 
Lessons to be learned is their coordination between any of the programs that are offered at these different uh, institutions and uh, how can we look at this from a coordinated point of view to try to improve our capacity uh, for career training. Thank you, Senator. That is such an important question and it's one that we're asking ourselves every day. Um, I think uh, you're probably familiar with what we call National Security Memo Number 3, the directive issued by President Biden on February 3rd uh, with a mandate to strengthen the national security workforce. And the State Department is partic participating in this interagency policy process. State, at, at State, we have FSI and the uh, Bureau of Global Talent Management in the lead. And we're looking long and hard at, at what we do internally in terms of uh, recruitment, hiring, training, professional development, and sharing uh, our experiences and, and uh, initiatives with the interagency community. As part of that process, President Biden directed the interagency to create a National Security Education Consortium. And FSI has the lead on that for the State Department. And we've had some initial meetings chaired by the National Security Council. We're now in the process of working with our partners at the Department of Defense uh, to figure out how best we can operationalize that vision uh, from FSI's perspective, from the State Department's perspective. It would be extremely valuable to have a process whereby um, all of the national security agencies can catalog their strengths and their weaknesses. We've started uh, under the leadership of the National Security Council to do that. And so once we identify those gaps, we can look at ways that we could partner with other agencies to share curriculum, to train the trainers, hopefully to make training more accessible across the interagency. We, of course, are constrained by the limits of US law. And for example, FSI is required to charge tuition to other agencies for the trainings that we offer. And I think it's, it's a vice versa arrangement. So uh, there's a lot of um, thought going into this question now. And I can assure you, Mr. Chairman, that we're committed uh, to working with our partners to do all that we can to strengthen training and professional development. If the interagency cost issues become an obstacle to further coordination and involvement and learning from each other, please let us know because that's something obviously Congress could rectify. The, the bottom line cost is not going to be different. It's just a matter of an accounting. And if that's at all hampering the cross uh, use of these facilities, uh, we would want to, to know about that. So. As I understand it, uh, you do not have a formal grading system at, at, at the Institute, although you do rank proficiencies in foreign language, which is one of the areas that we are deeply concerned about our competency in other languages. Uh, I'm just curious as to how you determine uh, how effective your programs are operating and how you evaluate for future promotions those who have benefited from the program if there's not a formal way of evaluating their progress? We actually do grade some of our classes. Um, there are certain classes where people need to pass exams in order, for example, to re receive a consular commission. They have to pass an exam at the end of the basic consular course. Uh, there are also certain courses uh, for people um, in order to have a contracting officer's warrant for example, to award contracts and oversee grants. Um, and we've found, by the way, in this virtual world where we're doing training quite differently, that people are passing those exams 
at higher rates and with higher scores, which is fascinating. And our takeaway, we're of course still assessing the lessons learned, our takeaway is that um, this adoption of something that's more like university-style education, where people work on their own reading, studying group projects, and then come back together as a group, um, it, it's helpful. So that's just a minor data point. But how do we evaluate ourselves? We do it a lot. We do it every day. Um, beginning back in 2016, FSI adopted new policies and standards which reflect, reflect the best practices in adult education systems throughout the United States. Universities, our partner government training institutions. And as part of these policies and standards, we began using something called the Kirkpatrick model evaluation. There are four stages to that. And two of them basically are the feedback from the students when they've been in the course. Did they feel that they were getting information delivered in a positive way? It was helpful? Did they, did they understand what they needed to do to meet their learning objectives to do their jobs? And then we have a follow-on stage evaluation phases three and four, or levels three and four, that's after people are out in the field. So let's say someone passed their, their consular course, and six months later they're working in Azerbaijan, one of my postings, and we'll reach back out and we'll ask them and we'll ask their supervisors how did the training do in terms of preparing them to do their jobs. And all of our programs throughout the Foreign Service Institute are required to have an annual evaluation plan and all of these four steps feed into that. So I'll ask one more question and I'll yield to Senator Haggerty. And, and that deals with the expertise in different areas. Uh, President Biden uh, recognized that corruption is a core national security interest. What capacity do we have in our missions to understand the challenges of corruption in the host country and to provide the, the type of information we need to assess U.S. involvement in that country? The same thing's true in climate change. The same thing's true in, in so many different areas where we need to have that local expertise in order to be able to carry out our missions. So I guess my, uh, I, I, there, there are a lot of different areas that we, we have expressed concerns over, over time. We've done trafficking in humans has been an area that we've been involved in where the local mission has a specific responsibility in our, uh, our rating systems. Uh, so tell me how the training is, uh, is focused on providing the type of expertise in our missions to deal with the more complex missions that we are now asking uh, our uh, missions to, to carry out. Thank you, Senator. And I, I know uh, anti-corruption is a huge priority for you. And I recall in my confirmation hearing, you asked me to affirm that I would work on it. And I'm pleased to report that I did during my tenure in Algeria. And we're getting very close to passing legislation that will set up a tier rating system. It's been both the House and Senate bills, we expect it may very well be included in the National Defense Authorization Act. So it's going to be, a, a, I think, a requirement, and you're going to need to have that capacity and mission. Well, thanks for the heads up on that. And I'm pleased to report that we do have anti-corruption training. It's a course that we developed with the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement. We also tackle issues related to anti-corruption in our political economic tradecraft course. Um, and also the training for political economic chiefs. Um, and with the Bureau of European Affairs over the last few years, we've done workshops, which are not formal FSI training, 
but they're a really good way to get information and skills to people in the field when they need it and where they need it. And, and we're shifting to more of that kind of a format in addition to uh, FSI-hosted training. Um, but to answer your broader question about how do we make sure that people have the skills, the background, the expertise that they need to deal with these 21st century challenges, it's, it's a hugely important question. And as I mentioned in my opening remarks, um, we have been working on this for a while. And so we're about to roll out a new course on cyber diplomacy tradecraft that will start in January. This is brand new for us. We're excited about that, and we developed that with the Office of the Coordinator for Cyber Issues. Um, I mentioned that we're also doing needs assessments now for climate and emerging technology. We do offer training in both those areas, but they're woven into specific courses. And um, so we know, we know that we need to do more. Our first step in accordance with our policies and standards is to talk to the policymakers and the State Department, talk to people out in the field. What do they need to know? We have to define the business need and then build the training around that. Um, we also have a needs assessment underway right now of commercial diplomacy training, which is a, a huge priority in the foreign policy for the middle class. And there's a separate GAO review that we're eagerly awaiting the results for that, and we will use that then to strengthen our already robust commercial advocacy training. Um, in the last couple of years, we started training on data analytics, which is a very important field and one that I think, admittedly, the State Department has not been great at in the past. And so far, we've trained 3,000 people there in that area. We've also developed new approaches to information technology training. Um, we have a course called Solutions at State that is training our IT specialists not to think of themselves as technicians, but as consultants and problem solvers. And for instance, uh, Mr. Chairman, you highlighted anti-corruption. If we're working on that issue in an embassy overseas, how can we leverage technology to read the newspapers for us, to, to build the cases, to do something that it might take a human weeks to, to do, but if we leverage technology, we can do that in um, a more effective way and, and perhaps a, a more rigorously analytical way. So that's an area for growth, I think, leveraging artificial intelligence. We also um, have developed new courses in our Global Area Studies program that focus on these cross-cutting issues and lecture series, again, so we can bring information to people when and where they need it. So we have a, a Global uh, issues er, um, Area Studies issue speaker, sorry, speaker series, and also Technology in Focus, which is another area we're trying to merge technical information with foreign affairs generalists so that people can understand these broad brush issues, and they've been very popular. Well, thank you for that information. That's very helpful. Senator Haggerty. Thank you so much, Senator Cardin. Um, Ambassador Polshik, I'd like to come back to a quote from Ambassadors Bill Burns and Linda Thomas-Greenfield, if I might. In 2020, they published an article in Foreign Affairs criticizing the lack of, and, and I quote, a rigorous doctrinal approach to the art of diplomacy in the State Department. And I agree with their assessment, uh, considering the State Department doesn't provide or require mandatory training on the very basic fundamentals of American diplomacy. Former Secretary of State George Shultz advocated for all incoming State Department employees to spend a full academic year of professional education to address this problem. From my perspective, beyond entry-level training and as a business person, uh, I feel certain that we'd benefit from education for mid to senior level employees as well. 
Ambassador, do you agree that the State Department should require all employees, both foreign and civil service, to receive a more rigorous doctrinal approach to the art of diplomacy, and, and that they do this through varied points as their career advances? Senator, I do agree. And this is something that I personally began working on almost two years ago when I joined the FSI team as the Dean of the School of Professional and Area Studies. Um, like you, I, I uh, really deeply regretted the opportunities for, for more training between that entry level and the ambassadorial level. Mm -hmm. And we've been working hard to address that challenge. We have a new pilot course in the works, mid-level training, and again, using that business model where we've gone out to our customers, uh, policy practitioners in the field, the heads of regional bureaus, to ask them, what do they see as the gaps in our mid-level workforce? And this is foreign service and civil service together, by the way. So we've identified uh, strategic analysis, effective communication with a range of audiences, effective adaptation to various operating environments, and mentoring subordinates as key gaps. And so we're developing a, a week-long course that will address those gaps and also interlocking modules in these, both the hard skills, negotiations, and also these areas, these new areas that people need to become familiar with, whether it's climate or emerging technologies, to build out a curriculum. Um, we're really excited about it. We will launch the pilot next summer and we're also talking with the uh, Bureau of Global Talent Management about how, about how we could operationalize this. And uh, both of you highlighted the, the training float. And God rest Secretary Powell's soul. He left such an important legacy for the State Department in terms of his commitment, not just to training, but to the people of the department. And we hope, I mean, FSI, we'd really hope to um, live up to that legacy and look at ways that we could create some meaningful professional development for that training float once we fully have it in place. And I think you're familiar with Secretary Blinken's request that we add 500 people in the coming year, including a first ever 100 person civil service training float. So this will come incrementally with time. And as we build out this pilot course and hopefully have support from the Senate and the House of Representatives to, to fund it, I think there's quite a lot of exciting work that we could do to build that capacity at the mid-level and beyond. Well, I, I appreciate the direction that uh, you're articulating. I also note that it's not going to be easy. If you think about the operational aspects of this, just think about the housing component itself. Uh, it frustrated me to no end waiting on staff because we didn't have the overlapping housing capacity to deal with the fact that uh, folks really did need to overlap, but we didn't have the housing capacity for them to do it. So um, I'm certain that that's part of the things, part, part of the aspect that you're focused on. I am also curious what sort of metrics or standards that you would use, what you would apply to know that you're being successful as you develop this curriculum. Well, we would use the same Kirkpatrick level of evaluations. Um, so what we do is we, we look at the learning objectives that are set as part of the course development process and then see how we're meeting them. And again, it's feedback first from the students in the classroom, but then once people are out in the field, six months later, has this really enhanced their capacity to perform effectively? Let me turn to another area here quickly, if I might. Um, and, talk to you about the what, what, what I perceive is a, a, a relative um, issue with the State Department versus other 
agencies that deal with national security. And I want to just share some statistics with you for a minute because I think it underscores the difference in terms of emphasis that the State Department puts on hard training versus language training. There's a great deal of emphasis, as you know, on language training. But according to U.S. Diplomatic Studies Foundation, the State Department provides only six weeks of non-residential, non-language training. By comparison, the CIA provides six months of reg residential, non-language training. The FBI provides 20 weeks of residential, non-language training. The DEA provides 20 weeks of residential, non-language training. An Army officer spends six months in officer's training course in addition to basic training beyond language training. And the length of training, I think, likely reflects the priority uh, that, that the organization places on the, the tenets of and the art of diplomacy or the, or, or, or the uh, activity in their department. In, in your view, do you see the discrepancy there? Do you, do you, do you have a sense that uh, we have a lot of room to cover? Senator, it's a, a complicated comparison to make. And I would note that one thing that, that came very clear to me through our discussions with the interagency as we're working on this National Security Education Consortium is that every agency has a unique mandate and unique training needs associated with that mandate. But I, I would disagree with um, the information put forward by the U.S. Diplomatic Studies Foundation. Yes, our basic orientation course for a foreign service officer or specialist is six weeks. But beyond that six weeks, there's a heck of a lot more. So to take my own case, which was mm -hmm. admittedly quite some time ago, when I joined, I then went into training that was specific to my onward assignment, my first assignment. So I spent, um, the, I did the orientation class, I did three week, uh, sorry, three months of GSO training, six weeks of consular training, and then um, four weeks of, of top-up Russian. So I was actually at the Foreign Service Institute for almost a full year. It was, 12, uh, sorry, 10 months before I went out to my first assignment. And that's actually quite typical. So the six months of general training that an, a U.S. Army officer gets is actually pretty comparable to what a U.S. Foreign Service officer will get before she or he deploys to the field. Um, we also, something that I think is, is a challenge in our system is that we train to the specific assignment that's coming. So uh, we, we don't have, for instance, an expectation that a U.S. diplomat must study negotiations. And I, I love to share this example. I had been in the business for 26 years uh, when I first joined the State Department team, I'm uh, sorry, the FSI team, and I only learned then that we teach negotiations, mm -hmm. which is pretty shocking. So that's why I feel that this mid-level course is so important, because there are things that we teach at FSI, and we teach it well, but because of the way that our personnel system is set up, our assignment system, so that you take training really only that's needed for a specific assignment, we miss out on some of those. And we hope to rectify this with the creation of the mid-level training course and the development of a training float so we actually have the time and the space to allow people to, to train effectively, not just for the particular job, but for a career. Yeah, I, I will uh, share this with you after the, after the meeting, but I've got some statistics here uh, titled the five-year workforce plan for fiscal years 2019 through 2023 for the State Department. And it shows the overwhelming weight of training going toward language and a much smaller portion going toward tradecraft or area studies or learning how to supervise. And again, back to the balance of training, um, I would just argue, again, as a business person, 
but those other components are terribly critical. Um, I had the benefit of serving in a post that had a tough language, but I also felt that we suffered when the language requirements were erected so high that language proficiency became far more important to get to post than, for example, management proficiency. So I think uh, striking a balance there will be critically important. Thank you. Senator, Senator may I address that point? Um, because I, I think I, I'd like to unpack it a little bit. And yes, when you look at the Foreign Service Institute's budget, the language school is the behemoth. Mm -hmm. um, but that's because the State Department has prioritized language training for a number of positions. And we look at that very carefully every three years. There's a triennial language review and leadership from embassies overseas, the regional bureaus make the decision about what kind of what level of language proficiency is needed. And having served most of my career in places where people don't speak English, I've, I personally can attest that it's been incredibly valuable to be able to communicate with host government officials, uh, civil society leaders, the general public in their own language. But actually, our, our language students are the minority. I mean, the budget is quite a lot because it, it costs a lot to do that language training. But for instance, in fiscal year 20, FSI had 69,356 students. Only 5,000 5, of them were language students. So they're there for the longer term training, yeah. but 64,356 other people pass through our halls, our virtual halls in some cases, for a wide array of trade craft courses. So we do quite a lot, um, but just the, the budget doesn't necessarily reflect that. Yeah, I just, I, I'll encourage you, and we'll spend some time after this to, um, to, to look at that balance again. Uh, and I, I served at a post where the post itself made the recommendations. I think in a way, it tends to be self-reinforcing. Uh, the post I served at, they called the chrysanthemum club. And the lack of fluency in Japanese, for example, at that post became a barrier to getting what I thought were the type of qualifications, the type of individuals I needed. For example, Japan's the third largest economy in the world after the US and China. Yet I had zero business degrees in that embassy. So there's, a, there's got to be a balance struck here. And I look forward to talking to you more about it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Senator Haggerty raises a couple issues as to how you make decisions on mid-level as to who can get the training. Uh, as you indicate, you don't get the training until you need it in your assignment. But if it's not identified, or the person cannot find a place, then we are going to be without capacity in a mission uh, because of that. Or if, you, if we don't have someone to fill in and we can't afford to allow a person to leave for training, uh, it, it also means that you are going to see a situation, perhaps in the Japanese mission, where we don't have the individual trained as, as highly as we needed to in, in the economic or trade uh, mission. So I, I think it does raise questions as how you make those decisions. I'd like to address the, 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 the um, issue that you just raised, Mr. Chairman, which is so important in terms of gaps and how we actually get people to training. One of our great lessons learned from COVID is that we don't need to fly people back to Washington to do training effectively. As I mentioned in my opening remarks, we've converted 94% of our course offerings to the virtual world. So that means if someone is sitting in uh, Mission Japan and they haven't had a chance to take commercial advocacy training before they got to post, they can do it while they're working in, in Tokyo or one of the consulates um, with 
much less investment of time because they don't have to have the travel time and at much less cost to the US government. So we're working now on trying to figure out the right balance in the future. What do we need to really offer in person at the FSI campus and what should we keep virtual? And I think in many cases we're leaning to keeping um, a mix of some in-person and some virtual, for example, with commercial advocacy training, because if people are going to be here in between assignments, they would benefit from in-person training, but if they can't fit that into their schedule, we can get it to them where they are in the field when they need it. Mr. Chairman, I might just add sure. one point to, to the, the, the issue you raised, uh, and I applaud your point, Ambassador, technology and the realization that we've come to over the past uh, year and a half, two years, may present a real opportunity here as we look at prioritizing the needs and the deficiencies that I saw uh, in the old way of how we did business. And uh, Senator Haggerty's observation in, uh, as an ambassador has been reinforced by a lot of what I've heard as I've traveled to different missions around the world about getting trained individuals in the areas of great of great need in that mission. So I recognize you're doing everything you can to fill the void, which brings us, of course, to if you're going to have a physical presence, then you need to have the pool of, uh, of uh, positions in order to, to fill those. And you mentioned uh, the budget includes 500. Where did that number come from? Mr. Chairman, I'd have to take that question back because I thought our you might because I've heard numbers as high as 2,000 that are needed. Yes, and I recognize the pragmatic issue of how uh, budgets and and there's also transition issues. But I was just wondering if there's a rationale for 500. I can share the FSI side of it, and I would again have to defer to colleagues on the um, GTM side of the house. But as we were building our FY23 budget request. We looked long and hard at what we needed just to make our current training float whole because, in fact, we do have positions that are built to be sort of a training float. It's our long-term language training that Senator Haggerty just mentioned. And actually, the way that we have been staffed, unfortunately, in recent years, we haven't even been at, at that full minimal training float. So the initial figures are to get us to make us whole and also to build out Long, more opportunities for long-term professional development and training. Every year, the Foreign Service, actually the State Department writ large, sends 100 uh, people out for long-term training. And so adding 100 civil service professional development and training float positions would allow us to do even more. And those long-term trainings are at the National Defense University, at, at um, non-governmental universities. Uh, we have positions at Princeton and Stanford, and it's a wonderful opportunity for our colleagues. I'm going to turn the gavel over to Senator Kane. Uh, there is a second vote that's on the floor that Senator Haggerty and I are both going to have to, at some point, go to cast our votes. Uh, Senator Kane, uh, when you finish your questioning, if you want to go to the next panel, you may. There's no other uh, person online, and we have the information on that. I'll leave with you. Thank you. Both of you have done your questions already. Okay, great. Thank you. Let me find my place in my notes, having just walked in. One of the things that I like doing as a member of the Foreign Relations Committee is when I travel to other countries, I usually ask to meet with first and second term FSOs without the ambassador present. It makes some of the ambassadors nervous, but I tell them this is not to ask them what they think about you. 
Um, and I usually then congratulate these FSOs. I say, you've, you know, you've achieved a job that is really hard to get. And then I ask this question, what will make you decide to either stay with the State Department for your entire career or what might make you decide to do something different? And that, I, I hardly have to say anything more than that to guarantee a hour and a half or two long, dis, a two hour long discussion as people talk about the, the joys and the challenges um, of life uh, working uh, in the Foreign Service of the United States. My observations over the years, and we've had committee testimony to this effect, is that other nations are now investing more in their sort of foreign service professionals than we are. Um, this might have already been addressed in the questions that have been asked, but um, how can we, you know, do a better job uh, in attracting the best, but then maybe also the, the retention issue has been a significant one, and maybe particularly the retention of a diverse workforce. The State Department needs to be more diverse, and I think sometimes the retention of diverse uh, foreign service professionals is particularly challenging. So I would love it if, if you might address that. Thank you, Senator, for that question and for your support of our entry-level colleagues and colleagues at every level. We really appreciate it. Um, so we talked earlier with um, the, the chairman and Senator Haggerty about a mid-level training program, a pilot that we have underway at FSI um, because, like you, we've uh, been very concerned about the gaps that exist in our training program between the entry level and then the more senior uh, positions. And so uh, back in 2020, I asked our team to start talking with our, our clients, basically the regional bureaus, folks out in the field, what do they see as the gaps? And they identified four areas that deal primarily with analysis, communications, working with the Hill is one of them, um, and mentoring others. And so we're developing a new five-day pilot course that um, should address those gaps but it's not just the, those skills, it's also looking at these new areas that 21st century diplomats need to understand and be able to work effectively. Climate change, emerging technology, multilateral institutions, et cetera. So we see this course plus interlocking modules as a way to build capacity. In fact, many of those courses we already offer, it's just that people don't really necessarily have the time to take them because it's constantly you know, this rotation. So the training float, that Secretary Blinken hopes to create should address some of those needs to give people the time and space to, to build their skills and, and train. And I just wanted to add, with respect to diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, um, we have done a lot in recent years. We um, launched a new course in 2019, Mitigating Un Unconscious Bias, which is a foundational course so people can become aware of their own inherent biases and begin addressing them. We're doing a needs assessment now to look at State Department-wide DEIA training needs. And we've also hired a new senior advisor for DEIA to accelerate our efforts. Um, we're also building out our organizational development coaching program. That was a very strong ask from our State Department employee affinity groups so that they would feel more supported. And we also have a new um, mid-level leadership program, the Secretary's Leadership Seminar that we launched with Harvard Business School, which is pretty cool. And, um, and we relied on a, a private philanthropist for support for that. Um, but I heard when we had the graduation of the first cohort in September, I heard so many mid-level officers, both civil service and foreign service, say to me, I feel valued. 
as a result of that course. And so I think looking at ways that we can support people with programs like that where they feel valued will be really important to stopping the attrition. Ambassador Polishik, let me ask you another question. Um, and again, it may have been covered in the previous questions as I was voting. Um, the Belfer Center talks about the, the, the study, and I know we'll hear more about this in panel two, about the need to expand the size of our Foreign Service Corps by at least 2,000 positions, maybe as many as 380. My understanding is the FY22 budget does begin down that path with a proposal of nearly 500 in some of the areas you just mentioned, uh, more expertise in China, Indo-Pacific, climate, global health, responding to some current concerns. Do you have an understanding about is the 485, you know, part of a five-year plan to get to 2,000 or get to 1,500? What, what is your understanding about the kind of path uh, that uh, state and the administration may be intending to go in future years? Sorry, I turned myself off. Um, I'll, I'll take that question back for our colleagues in the Global Talent Management Bureau, but I was involved in the discussions as we were building out the 22 and 23 budget, and our idea is, as you said, to do this incrementally um, because we first need to make ourselves whole in terms of uh, filling our existing training float because we're not even there now, um, and then building in more. And having civil service colleagues as part of that is really important because the way our civil service core is structured right now, they don't have the same flexibility and um, ability to go in and out for, let's say, a year-long detail on the Hill as a professional development opportunity. Thank you. I have no further questions, uh, Ambassador Polishik. I'm very happy to have you here, and I would be very happy now to welcome our next two witnesses. Um, if you might uh, come up, and we'll just take a brief break as Joshua Marcuse and David Miller come. And Ambassador, uh, thank you very, very much for serving in such an important role. And just as the uh, panel is shifting and we're bringing up panel two, sometimes we just omit to explain to the public. So I have two panels, three people can sit at the table, and this is uh, designed uh, as a hearing on this very important topic, uh, the State Department workforce for the 21st century. The first panel is a little bit the, the not, not necessarily the party line, but what is the State Department's thought, and the ambassador is a current member of the State Department Professional uh, Foreign Service. That's panel one. Panel two are experts who care very deeply about this. They're not part of the current State Department. Um, they've had experience in State Department issues, but they offer not an administration or State Department position, but their own uh, position given their expertise. And it's helpful to the committee to hear both from uh, inside the administration, but outside experts as well. And that's why we've set the panel up in this way. Um, if I, let's see, so I have my, Panel members, go ahead and have a seat, if you will. And as you do, I will introduce you, uh, and it may be by the time I finish the introductions and then you finish your testimony, uh, both Senators Cardin and Haggerty will return. Um, Josh um, Marcuse, Josh is the head of strategy and innovation uh, for global public sector at Google Cloud. He previously served as executive director for the Defense Innovation Board, which is a group focused on bringing technological and organizational innovation and business practices of Silicon Valley to the Department of Defense. He was the information advisor to the CTO, uh, uh, Chief Technology Officer at the Department of Defense, and also held roles in the 
Office of the Secretary of Defense for Policy Personnel Readiness and Chief Management Officer. He's also worked at Center for Strategic and International Studies, Booz Allen Hamilton, and connected to the Council on Foreign Relations. So Joshua, thank you for being here today. Um, and then second, our uh, second witness on panel two is Ambassador David Miller, partner and founding inv investor of Torch Hill Capital LLC, a private equity firm. Uh, in private sector, he has worked for a decade in international positions at Westinghouse. Ambassador Miller was the special assistant to the president for national security affairs on the National Security Council staff at the White House from January 1989 until December 1990. He was the U.S. ambassador to Tanzania from 1981 and 84 and to Zimbabwe from 1984 to 1986. Following a year in Vietnam, working on projects primarily for um, ARPA, he was selected as a White House fellow in 1968 and 69, and he's had extensive experience working both in and out of government. Um, he's a member of the Council of Foreign Relations and also the District of Columbia Bar. If I could ask each of you to testify, try to keep your testimony to five minutes. Mr. Marcuse, I'll begin with you and then Ambassador Miller. Um, you, is your mic on? Uh, uh, no, it's not. I wonder if we've... Is that better? That's much better. Senator Kane, Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Haggerty, and distinguished members of the subcommittee, thank you for the invitation to testify today. I'm here solely in my capacity as a private citizen, not representing any organization, especially not the Department of Defense, where I had the privilege to serve as a civilian for more than a decade until March 2020. Unlike the distinguished ambassadors here today, I have never had the honor of serving in the Department of State. I can only offer the impressions of a well-intentioned outsider humbly submitted with the utmost respect for my colleagues. At their finest, there is no tool of foreign relations more powerful than the ingenuity, versatility, and resolve of America's diplomats. Yet, the state personnel with whom I spoke described an organization that, to them, feels rigid, hierarchical, risk-averse, a culture that is nostalgic and stagnating, and employees who are discouraged. Surely the truth is more nuanced, nevertheless. Now is the moment for a cultural renewal in our State Department workforce. To usher in this renewal, I suggest three observations. First, modernizing training alone is inadequate. A holistic approach is needed to foster an organizational cultural fit for the 21st century. FSI should be commended for its substantial efforts to modernize training, but we must ask ourselves, how might all State Department leaders intentionally construct a learning culture, one where people are encouraged to experiment, to innovate, and to adapt? Second, we need a new paradigm of diplomacy, necessitating a relook at curriculum for an increasingly digital world and new generations of the workforce. Third, the delivery mechanisms for training will require overhaul rather than incremental improvements. The dominant modes of professional development have changed radically in the commercial world and academia. There are more ways than ever to deliver rich, multimedia, interactive content to a globally distributed user base. Based on these observations, I suggest seven recommendations. First, the Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources should establish a State Department Chief Learning Officer a senior leader with a small team dedicated to promoting a learning culture. Next, the State Department should create a network of designated individuals at every bureau and embassy 
to be responsible for learning and training. USAID's Bureau of Policy Planning and Learning offers an example to follow. Their continuous learning and adaptation initiative should probably be expanded statewide. Second, the State Department should aggressively pursue diverse outside perspectives. DOD benefited from the establishment of a robust Defense Innovation Board in 2016, which enjoyed bipartisan support from Obama and Trump administrations. Perhaps the State Department should explore creating its own version, a Diplomacy Innovation Board. Third, the State Department should embrace digital competencies. The Defense Innovation Board recommended DOD prioritize five focus areas, design thinking, lean startup, agile software development, data science, and innovation management. Subsequent reports emphasized machine learning and artificial intelligence. State should increase its collaboration and training with providers outside of government, where much of that needed resources and expertise are concentrated. Fourth, the State Department should support homegrown innovation efforts. When I served in government, I was aware of three impactful grassroots initiatives at State, the Collaboratory, the Strategy Lab, and Tech at State. The Strategy Lab and Tech at State did not survive, and the work of the Collaboratory has migrated to other units, possibly due to budget constraints or changing priorities. These are the types of efforts that should be receiving more support and attention, not less. Fifth, the State Department should establish executive exchange programs to attract outside expertise and offer state personnel broadening experiences outside. For example, DOD effectively harnessed tech talent by establishing a defense digital service. It is time for a state digital service. Sixth, the State Department should increase the use of exercises, simulations, and experiments. FSI has made steady progress towards integrating scenario-based training into curricula, but there are further opportunities to explore. As an interim measure, more State Department staff should be invited to participate in DOD exercises. Seventh, the State Department must embrace a learning paradigm that makes emerging technology a priority, not an afterthought, in reimagining training and education. This will require significant resources, so sustained bipartisan congressional leadership is needed. This view is broadly consistent with the recommendations put forth by Representative Young Kim in her amendment. In the near future, FSI will must exist equally in the virtual world and the physical world. There are profound implications of these technologies. Learning does not occur at a set place in a set time, but is possible everywhere and at all times. FSI can better serve state's entire global workforce with on-demand learning for the lifespan of employment, perhaps even after. In conclusion, we need to preserve what the State Department has done right over the last century to train generations of inspirational leaders to represent our values and our interests abroad. But at the same time, we must boldly experiment with new concepts and practices that will innovate the diplomatic mission. Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Haggerty, Member Kane, and members of the subcommittee, thank you for giving me the opportunity to provide my perspective today. I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you very much for, for your testimony. We'll now go to Ambassador Miller. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Your, is your mic on? Now? You're on. Yep. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Haggerty, Senator Kane. Um, I joined Josh, and, and I think many, many of us in saying thank you so much for having this hearing on State Department education and training. It is, it is a desperately important subject that almost always ends up at the back of the line. And you guys taking the time today when there's actually a lot going on in the Congress at this very moment, 
I think is just outstanding. So thank you very much. Um, I, I have testified a number of times on this subject, and I will use my favorite sentence again. I have never seen an institution work so hard to select people and do so little to train them once they're on board. It is, it is a stunning observation. Uh, I benefited from the support of State Department officers during two tours as an ambassador, two years at the National Security Council. I offer recommendations and some criticism from a, a deep appreciation for the Foreign Service and the State Department. They are fine people. They, they sadly, though, I fear, represent a textbook example of the great philosopher Jim Mattis's observation that bad process beats good people nine times out of 10. Uh, General Mattis has a lot of quotes, but I've always liked that one a lot. At the heart of the issue is changing the current State Department culture, period. That, that is a tough assignment. The State Department does not incentivize or reward officers for spending time in training. In the past several decades, it never has, whether in a Republican or a Democratic administration. Other institutions, both within the government and the private sector, recognize that without a clear and sustained message from leadership, you cannot change an institution's culture. Historical evidence shows that large institutions simply develop bureaucratic inertia that is hard to overcome. Think back to Goldwater-Nichols reform in the 1980. The Defense Department needed a congressional push then, and the State Department needs a congressional push now. The, the committee asked for uh, specific recommendations, and we have a number. Um, the Congress should increase funding for the Foreign Service. It is under-resourced, and it does need float for training. And it was encouraging to hear Deputy Secretary McEwen mention the current request for 500. But I want to make a, a fundamental point here. Without fundamental structural reform, I think that the money will not be spent as wisely or usefully as it could. So to very specific recommendations, I think the Foreign Service Institute needs an outside board of visitors. That, that is a model that has proved valuable for the National Defense University, obviously for almost all private institutions of higher education. That, that board of visitors, if you talk to the people at West Point, hold that board in, in high regard for two reasons. One, it helps West Point think about how to teach better. And secondly, it helps West Point sell their innovation to a larger audience. The Foreign Service Institute also needs a provost. And we need somebody that is an educational expert, that is at the Institute for longer than the normal turnover of Foreign Service Institute leadership. The A100 course needs to be residential, as is everybody else's course, and it needs to be significantly lengthened in time. And it would also help, frankly, if FSI leadership didn't turn over and over. We have been working with them for four some years, and essentially 
we have had four or five different leaders. The State Department has continued to rely on on-the-job training or experiential learning. And while on-the-job training is a nice idea, experience needs framing, which is otherwise referred to as education. So if you simply rely on on-the-job training, you're simply not doing your job. And finally, on the issue of, of diversity, mid-career training, we believe, is absolutely critical for the retention of minority officers. If, if the culture of the department remains mentorship and on-the-job training and informality, you almost inherently are offering unequal opportunity to our employees. So if we want to address the, the exit of mid-level officers of, uh, of minorities, I think the mid-level career course becomes absolutely critical. With that, I'll end my comments, but I want to say again, thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you for your testimony. I, I want to make a comment that is meant to be taken lightheartedly, so don't take it personally. It would have been much more effective if you were to use the Naval Academy as the example rather than West Point, with the chairman coming from representing the state of Maryland and being on the board of visitors of the Naval Academy. But with that in mind, <laughs> <laughs> sir, I'm engaged in a game right now at the University of Maryland in College Park. Uh, which we call our diplomatic power for peace game. So I am steeped in the Arliss lab to the START program to the ICONS modeling. I wanted my son to be in the Navy, but he's, he's an airborne artillery officer at the moment. He likes staying on the ground. Well, God bless your son. We appreciate all the serve our nation. And we're all together except when Army plays Navy and football. We're all together. Yeah, that seems to be a continuing gap. <laughs> so noted. Senator yeah. Kane, would you like to start? <laughs> I'd be glad to. And thanks. This is a very important hearing, and there's some aspects of your testimonies that I find very interesting. So, Mr. Marcuso, Josh, I'm going to start with you. Just to repeat, in your interviews with state personnel from page two, quote, fewer of them seem to believe state's best days are ahead of them. Many describe an organization that, to them, feels rigid, hierarchical, parochial, and risk-averse, a culture that is nostalgic and stagnating, leaders who are anxious, employees who are disengaged. And then when you get to your observations or premises, the first one is modernizing training al alone is inadequate. You can't just fix training without going in and fixing culture, and that seems to be uh, a common observation uh, between both of you. It's interesting, when I have the meetings, I think you might have been here when I was asking questions of Ambassador Polishek, if I meet with first and second term FSOs without the ambassador and present, and I ask what will determine whether you'll stay or whether you go, and I don't know what I was expecting to hear, but a theme that I hear is sort of a rigidity theme, and it's less about training, it's a little more, I have to go through the most intense security vetting possible to get this job, and then if I want to, like, order five, you know, pencils for my, uh, you know, to be at my desk at the embassy, wherever I'm situated, I have to fill out things in triplicate because they're worried that I may steal them or something. And so, you know, you, you vet me in an intense way, but then 
you still micromanage me in ways that suggest that you don't trust the results of your own vetting. But that, those comments are just indicative of a broader rigidity. So do we have a culture that, that rewards innovation and risk-taking and, and you, know, you have an assigned role, but you also can and should creatively free freelance a little bit to, to grow the role and bring good ideas to the table. And, and so I guess I'd like to ask you, Mr. Marcuse, separate and apart from the recruiting and training, what are things that we can do that would encourage more the, the risk-taking uh, creativity um, skills that you know our, our professionals have in pretty high, high degree? Thank you so much, Senator, um, and thank you for that observation uh, because I think it demonstrates great insight into the experience of our diplomats today. Uh, and I, I get the sense that the people you were talking to were very candid with you in those conversations and that you understand what we're up against with this. Um, I thought it was um, really, really important that Senator Haggerty talked about training people to become supervisors and the importance of that. And the common thread that I'd love to draw here is that uh, all the studies from business schools show that people don't leave companies, they leave bosses. When there's someone at work who believes in you, who trusts you, who supports you, who you believe is invested in your growth, then you feel great loyalty not only to that individual but to that entire institution. And when you don't have that kind of leadership, it builds into that frustration. And what it really comes down to is do employees feel like they're trusted? Do they feel like their boss has their back? And the term for this is psychological safety. And psychological safety is the precursor of innovation and creativity and critical thinking and crucially of dissent. And that is really what we need in order to have a culture of innovation and a culture of learning at the State Department and really any, anywhere in our government. And so I think that um, one of the things I would love to see the Foreign Service Institute and the State Department do a lot more of is take the art and science and tradecraft of people leadership and elevate it to the highest purpose of our training and education. Because if you take language and you take the subject matter of area studies and you take all of the other things aside, what will determine whether our diplomacy is effective or not is how we lead our people. And leadership is not just hierarchical and top-down. We are leading our peers and managing up to our bosses, and we are leading as individual contributors as well as managers at all time. And there's no more fitting tribute to Secretary Powell than to say that leadership should be our highest goal and our highest purpose. And I think that there are of many uh, observations you've heard today about teaching leadership at the Department of Defense, it is by no means perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But it is something that the department takes very seriously. And I think that that is an important observation about learning culture, sir. Thank you. Um, Mr. Chair, I have one more question, but I'm glad to wait until you each ask questions, or would you like me to answer it now, ask it now? Oh, why don't we go to Senator Haggerty and right. then we'll come back. Senator right. Haggerty. Thank you, and I want to just note that your question was indeed very insightful, Senator Kane. I think it shows a great deal of appreciation and understanding for the challenge here. So thank you for, for calling that to our attention. I'm going to come back to Mr. Marcus and continue um, this discussion. I'm very interested to hear about 
your experience and your insights during your time serving the Defense Innovation Board. And we recognize that there are many institutional challenges that are related to the United States military. However, it appears that the military approaches the issue of training and education very seriously and dedicates significant resources and attention to that issue. And it's not a coincidence that some of our senior military leaders, such as General David Petraeus, General H.R. McMaster, have earned their PhDs while they were serving in the military. So Mr. Marcus, in your view, what are the major factors that led the, the U.S. military to prioritize training and professional education? And how are our soldiers incentivized and rewarded for pursuing further training and professional education? And then take us to how, what we can learn from that as you think about the opportunity with the State Department. Thank you so much uh, for that question um, and for those observations. And one of the uh, one of the one of the things that we've observed about um, General McMaster is that in uh, in all the conversations that we were in in DoD about innovation uh, and dissent and and creativity, everyone would always point to the one general that wrote the book, Dereliction of Duty. And he said, well, we, we have creativity in, in the Department of Defense. We have Mavericks. Look, we have, we have the one general, General McMaster. And um, he would be the first to tell you if he were here, and I believe Senator, uh, excuse me, I believe General Petraeus would as well, that they had to buck the trend to pursue their PhDs. I have a colleague who now is a brilliant professor at the Air Force Academy who was told that she should absolutely not pursue a PhD because she would never fly again. Um, we actually have research from the Office of Economic and Manpower Analysis at West Point, which shows that your promotion potential, I believe, is diminished by 40% if you pursue a PhD. So the truth is, is that the people that have gone on to do exactly the laudable behavior that you described had to buck the process that one of my personal heroes, um, Secretary Mattis, referred to here, which is that the process does not reward or support this behavior. What I do think we have seen um, is that it is an expectation of everyone in the military to spend a substantial proportion of their time in training, a much larger proportion of their time than at the State Department. But the cultural barriers at State and at DOD are nearly identical. If you look at the training that we do offer in DOD, it is not training in innovation. It is not training, uh, for the most part, in these digital areas that I highlighted. D you know, DOD is also facing many of the same challenges that the State Department's facing. I uh, applaud that they gave themselves a bit of a head start in the last five years. But what's really interesting about um, the, the kinds of training and education that I think we're discussing in this uh, in this dialogue right now is that much of it that occurred in DOD was grassroots. Uh, I'll give an example. Um, a bunch of Marines created their own center for adaptive warfighting. They just made it themselves. They got the training online. They're autodidact. Um, maybe they were able to get a little bit of training dollars here and there. But you know, we, we had to fight very hard um, to get even small amounts of training for, for uh, money for these kinds of things. So one of the things you got to encourage you to, to unpack and to excavate and to push um, the State Department and DOD are all leaders on is, you know, they, they say that we're training people in data science. But we really need to understand what that means exactly and precisely because offering this kinds of training doesn't necessarily mean that they're learning the right curriculum or that, or that it's being done in the right way. Well, uh, my optimism may have been misplaced um, but the two gentlemen I mentioned uh, are ones I know personally, and I noticed that they had been able to achieve that. It turns out to be miraculous 
accomplishment. I would say it was, would be even more so were it to have happened in the Department of State. If I were to find optimism, though, it's that the State Department is smaller. Perhaps we can be more agile. And we have a dedicated chairman and ranking member here that would like to see uh, change happen. So we want to support that and, and, and move in a positive direction. I appreciate your help there. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I have another question for Ambassador Miller, but I'll come back to that after you've had an opportunity to go. Thank you. Everybody's being so polite up here, I'm telling you. It's, uh, I'm going to ask one question, and I'll get, turn it back to Senator Kane, and that is you've indicated, I think everyone recognizes that resources are needed, but resources are not the sole problem that we have here. There's a cultural problem uh, within the State Department. And this committee, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, has the responsibility of, of, of oversight, of establishing the correct policy. The appropriators will provide the dollars. And a lot of times in doing that, they'll put certain legislative language in with the consent of the Foreign Relations Committee to try to direct the funds in a more constructive environment. The better way would be for us to pass in reauthorization language dealing with what we with our structural changes that we would like to see at the State Department as it relates to this subject. You've mentioned a couple specific issues on a board of visitors or a provost, but I'm just interested as to whether you could see some other statutory directions that you think would be helpful in order for us to address the historic challenges that we've had within the State Department on promotions, on, uh, on the availability of training, the scope of training, et cetera, uh, if there is ways in which we could be more constructive in our authorization. Ambassador Miller. Yes. Um, I, I think that the, the fundamental cultural change is the link of education and training to promotion. That, that is the key to success as you look at the CIA's rebuilding of its training facility and basically the agency saying, you will not get promoted unless you take these courses. The FBI and DEA offered incentives, i.e. if you want to become an ASAC someplace or ASAC, you have to take these courses. If you look at that simple achievement at state, if it, there has to be a linkage between leadership and management and training and, and promotion, which is, I, I think, the key thing. I am also very, very concerned about the lack of training for ambassadors. It is, it is in my mind, somewhat absurd that we send out individuals with remarkable authority from the president and we give them three weeks of training if you're in the private equity business that would be one of these things you'd say really either change the letter or train the player and i think that that that's something that you have to look at as a fundamental cultural change if in particular our special forces are rotating back into main theater operations, and our State Department is going to become the tip of the spear around the world in many cases where we're in a soft power confrontation with the Chinese, and yet we have not 
faced into the fact that we, we seriously need to consider the training that we give the people that lead our missions. Let me ask one additional question, and that deals with the training float. You've heard the comments that we need to have a additional personnel so that we can fill with competent help while training is going on. The administration's budget includes 500. Uh, if you, either one of you have a view at first as to the gap we have on the training float and the need for us to have additional personnel in order to make this easier for training. And secondly, is 500 a reasonable number or do you have a view on that? Who wants to volunteer to go I, first? I think I want to volunteer one of Josh's heroes I'm willing to bet. And that is General Odierno in the middle of an awful ops tempo mess said, we're not going to stop education and training. That, that sent a huge signal through the military that education and training was absolutely critical. I, I would like to comment a bit on the float thing. Everybody needs float. Everybody wants more float. Everybody wants more employees. I, in my, in my opinion, I think that the State Department needs to function, look at the available float today, 500 entry-level people are not going to solve the issue of Deputy Assistant Secretary competence. Um, if, if we want to start increased training, and you have 150 DASs or whatever, there's part of my private sector soul that says, surely some of those people could be available for training now and meet the Senate and the House halfway. Of course, we need more people for training. We have more jobs to do overseas. But the float has to be found also in existing senior officers right now who need, who need more management and leadership training. Thank, thank you. Mr. Marcuse, do you want to add to that? Absolutely. I completely support the expansion of resources and staffing at the State Department, but I, would, I do worry that this training float is being used as an excuse. The truth is, is that the, all of the new paradigms of training do not necessarily fall into the same constraints and strictures that the training float assumes. Um, the performance of FSI during COVID that we heard from the ambassador is really impressive. If it's true that they've moved 94% of their training to virtual and that some of the performance, at least in the core training and other areas, have improved... Uh, and they can do it from anywhere, then they should continue adapting. They're on the right track. They're iterating. They should keep iterating past the constraint of the training float. When I had the privilege of building a professional development program inside OSD policy, um, there was not a training float. Everything was done by going to the managers and saying, I'm going to improve the performance of your people. I'm going to increase their employee engagement. If you believe uh, that what we're doing is a valuable use of their time, let me have some of their time. And they said yes. Uh, you know, I think the training float is really important for solving certain kinds of crunches uh, when you do need it to be residential and you are dealing with a very complex assignment system, and I appreciate that. But there's so much opportunity to do meaningful educational experiences 
that could be done in spite of the float. And I, I would encourage them to just keep up the momentum uh, that we heard earlier today and, and do even more of it and do more experimentation. Thank you. Thank you both. Senator Kane. Thank you. When I have these conversations that I mentioned with my first and second term FSOs, another issue that comes up that is very connected to retention, it's not training per se, but it's very connected to retention are issues about family. Um, I'll never forget being in uh, Egypt once and doing an FSO meeting and one of the second tours said, I've got to duck out. I have a Friday night Skype date with my husband, who was also a State Department person uh, in, in Turkey. So they would, you know, put on nice clothes and with a glass of wine in front of them have a Skype date. The, the, the model of who was a, an ambassador, who was an FSO from days gone by might have been, you know, a, a white male and maybe the family would accompany unless it was in a place of danger and otherwise the family might not accompany. But now it's so often the case that uh, our FSOs, you know, have, uh, have partners who are professionals, maybe professionals within the State Department family or, or professionals in other ways. And um, how, how good is the State Department at recognizing that the paradigm of who an FSO is and their family obligations is a little bit different than it would have been 30 years ago? I'm on the Armed Services Committee, and it's pretty common if we have discussions about personnel that I'll hear some version of. I have a boy who was in the Marine Corps. You know, we recruit the Marine, but we retain the family. You get somebody in and they're 18 or 22, that's one thing, but if you're going to try to retain them by then, they might have a family, and you have to think about it holistically. Do we have um, personnel models that are uh, sensitive enough to the, you know, realities of modern family life, including uh, life partners that have their own professions and, and want to be professionally challenged? Uh, <clears throat> wading into this is like volunteering for the housing board, which is something I was told never, ever, ever to do. Uh, and so I didn't. Uh, <laughs> but but I'll, <laughs> I'll wait into this anyway. Um, I think the CIA does a much better job of uh, tandem, tandem couples, if you will, uh, for the obvious reason that uh, the demands of of an operator's job, there are, are uh, have to be part of a family structure. It's awfully hard to have a COS and have a wife that doesn't know what her husband is doing or vice versa. Um, that said, generally speaking, I'm not up to speed in the last four or five years, but state, I do not think, listens quite carefully enough to these challenges. Um, one of the bits of evidence of that, I, I think, is the mid-level exit, which is about when families look at each other and say, uh, if we're going to live like this forever, then uh, this isn't going to work. And we lose an awful lot of good people there. One, because the problem is, in fact, difficult. I mean, let, let's not kick the can down the road. I mean, this, this is a serious issue. But I do think the department could do a, a better job of that. And um, I, I, I don't know of anything better to say than you have to learn how to listen very, very carefully. It's one of the things an ambassador can do at post 
is to listen. Because you solve the family issues one family at, at, a, at a time. Mr. Marcuse, how about your conversations with um, State Department personnel and insights into this question? Again, a question that de demonstrates a great empathy for the challenges uh, that they face. Uh, one I confess is a, a little bit outside the scope of my expertise, but as a parent of two young children, I can certainly relate to it and its motivation. One of the things that we would need to recognize is that there are moments in the life of everyone in their career, particularly a career as demanding as being a diplomat, when the best thing for their family is to leave. What is heartbreaking is that they don't have a good way to come back. And I think that we would do very well to have a more permeable model of service that would facilitate transitions in and out at these key milestone moments in people's lives and careers. There are incredible foreign service officers whose greatest moments in their career were serving this country, who have chosen to leave because they are putting their family first but there will be a time in the near future that they would love to return, and we should make it as easy for them as possible. At the moment, we do absolutely nothing for them. Um, they have to go through many difficult processes. They have to be read back into their clearances. There's things we could do for them financially and professionally that would recognize their time, whether they took time away to work in industry or to pursue further degrees, or to take care of their families, or just to slow down from the pace uh, of being abroad. Um, we, could, we could do a lot with human capital if we were more creative about thinking about sabbaticals, intermissions, temporary detours, and resuming. And that would also address the issue that you raised of making sure that our foreign service officers can also take care of their families. That's a very insightful response. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, Senator Haggerty. I'd like to just uh, come back to the notion of float that you raised for a moment, Mr. Chairman, and, and, and touch on something that, to use a business term, is uh, similar, related. It's capacity utilization. And there's something that happens in the career progress of foreign service officers uh, that yields a great deal of distraction and often misalignment. And that's why I'm so disappointed that the global talent management team isn't represented here today, because I've had strong foreign service officers that work for me that have been literally out of sorts for months trying to get their next onward placement. And what, what comes home to me is a text, or a, a, sorry, an email that I received early this morning from a foreign service officer, a very capable foreign service officer that worked for me. He's been two years trying to get to the right job and he wrote me to tell me finally, finally he's found a position that matches his skill set. Here's a very talented person that spent two years in limbo. Again, they put him in some job, but not the best utilization of his skill set. And as a business person, that's a capacity utilization problem. We've, we're, we're, we're misallocating the supply that we do have. Uh, again, it's, it's sort of related to the float issue, but it's also an opportunity. If we could come in and tighten up the timelines, uh, making clear the requirements and the metrics for onward progress, uh, th there's a lot of opportunity in the HR side. It looks like, Ambassador Middle, you have a comment there. Yeah. Um, fu fundamentally, if you, if you looked at the department objectively, if, if you caught Josh and said, why don't, why don't you take a look at the department for, for 30 days? There's, there's a huge amount that could be improved at state. 
it, it, it gets down to how many signatories do you need to move a, a memo forward? You know, how quick can we make decisions? From, from the top to bottom, you revert to the culture structure. Mm -hmm. And the culture is, in many ways, sort of a morass on many issues. And uh, I, I don't know exactly how to attack it, but uh, it, 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 is, it is pervasive. I fear. Well, I, I simply note this, that there is a tremendous amount of capacity that is being underutilized in the department today. Uh, it's disheartening to those that are caught in this sort of process. And it's something I think that if we apply business practices and principles to, we could go a long way toward addressing it. Any, any further comment on that point? Part of Just your remember. float issue if, if you will, and it, again, it's, it, it's a business practice. Let's suppose you have four DASs in the Bureau, and you say, I'd like to take one of them out for a week's worth of training, and they look at you and say, but there's nobody that could take their place. Now, if that's the case, you have an investment problem. <laughs> and that is, somebody ought to be in training to take the place of that DAS at some point. And so you're just, it, it's an opportunity both to train the DAS and look at the potential replacement mm -hmm. rather than an, an impediment to, oh, we don't have anybody for training. Just from a private equity background, it's just another little bit of, you know. Yeah, indeed. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, let me thank both of our, our witnesses. Um, to me, this is exactly what uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee should be doing on oversight. We invest a great deal in our diplomacy in the State Department, and we know we have a, a challenge in regards to the training issue and personnel issues. And it, it, they're difficult to get a handle on, but it is incredibly important that we have full capacity to carry out our extremely important missions around the world. So I think this hearing has been extremely helpful. We had some discussions yesterday about a reauthorization of the State Department bill. Uh, if you go back about 15 years ago, we used to pass reauthorizations of the State Department bill, and this would be a prime subject matter of a reauthorization bill. We haven't done that in the last 15 years, mainly because of the challenges in individual countries, and it becomes a target for amendments that can be difficult to handle. But on issues like this, uh, this would be a very healthy process to have a reauthorization. So we're looking for a way in which we can do that. One of the reasons I was excited to take on this subcommittee particularly was because of the support by both Senator Menendez and Senator Risch of having this type of oversight and making recommendations in regards to some of the fundamental issues at the State Department. Senator Haggerty and I identified training as an early issue that we, we wouldn't get our hands around and see whether we can do something constructive. So, so this hearing has been extremely helpful to us in helping us understand uh, what we need to do. So uh, we, we will uh, continue to reach out to you for help as we try to struggle with what we can do. 
both legislatively as well as oversight and through appropriations to make sure that we do everything we possibly can to have the, the strongest possible presence on the global stage. Uh, I lastly want to underscore what all of us have said. Our Foreign Service officers and the personnel at the State Department are dedicated uh, uh, individuals uh, serving our country with great distinction. So we are very proud of, of the men and women who step forward uh, to serve in these critically important roles. They deserve a system that recognizes their talent, that encourages their development and promotion, and is compatible with family life. And I think that's an area where we can improve and we intend to be active in trying to make that happen. So with that, the subcommittee will stand adjourned with our thanks to our witnesses.